Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. They will think we are doing one thing, but the truth is we are doing something altogether different. So said Professor X, and probably the entire X-Men marketing team when they began House of X and Powers of Ten. I'm Nico. I'm Kyle. I'm Dylan. And I'm Jonah, and we hope you survive the experience. Because this experience has been just an amazing roller coaster. I've just, I've loved it so much. And for no other reason, it's been exciting to read the X-Men, and it's been really exciting to get to read them in one book a week. That has been quite the wonderful revelation, but I'm getting ahead of myself and I'm sidetracking all over the place. We are here today, of course, to discuss Powers of Ten number five, and it has just been such an incredible ride. Kyle, Jonah, Dylan, this has been, it's just been nuts, and I've loved every page. Who here had a really strong reaction to Powers Five? Me. So, Jonah, what scene stands out that you want to talk about? Any and all panels that involve Emma. Holy shit, that Emma Frost sequence was incredible. I've loved Silva's art on the title, but Hickman and Silva really hit something beautiful with this Emma page that builds on some of what we've recently seen. There's some excellent use of nine-panel grid. Kyle, I believe you were current to where Emma was left off in the last run, so how did you feel about this picking up on the heels of Uncanny? It was definitely a change. We've already seen her actions earlier in this run, so I was expecting her to have some sway in what's going on, but seeing the way that everybody is treating her after the way that we left off in Uncanny with her kind of being a unwilling agent of the government while at the same time a recovering villain. Yeah, she was sort of in that place that Emma Frost always finds herself. A good guy, because well, nothing else worked recently and I'm so glad that Jonah brought up Emma and that you brought up up so many of the factors that went into why this is such a change because that leads me to my favorite new phrase of all time the quiet council of Krakoa and I am crazy about this ka idea because it's ka cool ka Jonah what did you think about the council of Krakoa I find it fairly fascinating I think it's the right choice and I think Emma makes a really good point that there needs to be a temporary form of government until they can figure out what works best for the mutant kingdom but I want to know who's on it we right now the only people that we know who are on it are Charles and Magneto and we have Sebastian Shaw as well as Emma Frost but we don't know who the third person she picked is as well as Cypher and Krakoa which makes sense because in Moira Nine's life we saw them become so buddy-buddy they actually fused into a whole new being that was just Krakoa so and but you know like that's just so Doug Doug's just so beta sub you know what I mean Dylan like Doug's just so beta sub he's always looking for an extra dimension being to make him feel like a real boy because Kitty never wanted to touch him in his no-no word spot so, so he's gotta, gotta like 
Well, no, he he tries to fill his kitty hole with warlock in a very different way. <laughs> so, Dylan, Dylan, for the love of God, Dylan, quiet, quiet Council of Krakoa, quiet me with your Council Krakoa, Dylan, Dylan. I mean, I think you worded that wrong. Doug has, oh, first of all, I love how you and I just call him Doug, but Doug always. <laughs> He's our exactly. buddy Doug. He's our, he's our boring friend Doug, who always needs someone else to make him actually be interesting. So, yeah. He is a facilitator. The X-Men have long had facilitation characters, and I feel like there's no better time to bring up the facilitation character in this story than right now. Fucking, my fucking maker. My gorgeous, my beautiful, my everything, my forge. When they kept using the term forge early on in this, I was pretty unhappy because I was afraid that Hickman was perhaps malapropriated appropriating the term forge for something other than what it was. The character, who is one of the few representations of Native American heritage on the page, and he is such a dynamic character with such a unique perspective and such a varied storied life, it would have been a shame to lose him. So number one, I'm glad that we didn't. But if I'm not mistaken, isn't the only limitation of Forge's ability that while he would be able to, he has never yet to this date built a perpetual motion machine? Isn't that like the one limitation he could do it but he has yet to do it and in so many ways isn't the house of x powers of 10 resurrection device essentially a perpetual mutant machine i think it is it's so much fun too because in some ways i'm starting to like have weird flashes of like lucy and ethel at the chocolate factory and just mutants won't come coming down the conveyor belt and but anyway so, did anybody else have a specific reaction to Forge? I agree with what you said. I really liked how they brought Forge in and how they decided that they were going to advance the use of Cerebro. We got more details on how Cerebro was originally built, that that was originally Charles's design, and that there have been other designs after that. And seeing him bring Forge in to update it even more is really cool. And I I also like the fact that they're hinting that having Forge work with Cerebro is helping him to evolve his own abilities. Absolutely. And I love so many of the things you touched on because I am such a big fan of Forge and I really think you hit a lot of what makes him fantastic. He's trying to advance himself because to him, the human condition is a machine that can go further. I also supremely love that instead of boring us with an arc where they have to get the celestial technology, then boring us with an arc where Forge has to build the machine and they're being attacked, and then boring us with an arc of the... Oh, just the perspective of the Orchis scientists building the Mother Mold, and then two fill-in issues. Uh, you know what I mean? Instead of getting this, like, long, drawn-out thing, Xavier's just like, me has the technology, yes, things could do, yes build science and forge is like i think we could bring everybody back from the dead a bunch of times and charles is like works for gene so i have no idea what any of those voices were Dylan, Dylan, Sir Dylan, Sir Dylan of the Many Warpaths, what stood out to you in this issue? For Jonah, it was the phenomenal scene in which Emma Frost was fearless and bartered her way to a better position than was initially offered to her, which, let's be honest, that's Emma Frost's lot in life. 
Dylan, what was your standout? Mine, I mean, I love Emma probably not as much as Jonah, but she is in my top five. So Emma being back, like you said, and I am just really happy that she is in the position that she's in. She may not be way up there like Charles and Magneto, but like you just said, Emma will find her way to be even more important than what she is now with being one of the secret Cohen council members. Shh, they're quiet. (laughs) (laughs) I am really happy that Forge is back. I like him. He's not one of my super favorite ones, but House of X and Powers of X is going to be a jumping on point for fans. And I really like how Powers and House have taken just mere panels to try to introduce as many memes as they can. And Forge is important to X-Men history. So for them to just throw him in there. So anybody who may be jumping on to X-Men comics at this point, they do know how important Forge is. So yeah, Forge and Emma is, it's just, this book was really good to them. And I actually want to speak about another character I feel that's a mainstay of the Marvel framework who has gotten an up and down shake in the last few years, who Hickman seems to understand better than most. And that would, of course, be Namor, the Submariner, the first mutant. Now, the Namor situation is so delicate. It's fascinating because they're never sure if they want him to be a good guy or a bad guy. And frequently that comes across in the characterization that he's a dynamically bombastic person who goes with the decision that frequently best suits Atlantis, occasionally best suits himself. He spent a lot of time with the X-Men, specifically under Matt Fraction's pen. Matt Fraction, who had a phenomenal talent for nailing the character. But here, he's just not having it. And he really gives it to Xavier. And I think one of the best lines ever, especially between the two of them, our King of Atlantis says, when offered a chance to join by Xavier, it's kind of you to ask, but if I'm comprehending the real reason you're doing this, it's because you finally realized that you are not them and that they will never accept you or love you. Not because you don't deserve it, but because they envy you. They hate your superiority and they always will. It's good that you finally figured this out, but let me ask you, do I strike you as someone who's just now realized how much better I am than everyone else? And do you actually think I believe that you feel that way too? Go away, little man, and don't come back until you really mean it. Oh my god, this, this is just, uh, it's just like, uh, every part of me loved that. Oh, squirm, little bald man, squirm. This actually made me like Namor for once. Yeah, you know, one of the things that's so interesting that I think it's actually one of the reasons to kind of hit a weird note that the MCU worked so stupendously well was because it is frequently difficult to get three, four big powerful character actors in one room and expect them to play off of each other in a way that doesn't hyper encroach. It helped that the Avengers cast got along brilliantly. It helped that they all had a tremendous fluidity with one another because their characters were defined and unique in those regards. And I feel like when you try and put so many characters who could all be called king in their own right in the same situation together on the same page it can frequently lead to like toxic masculine conflict i never understood why we were supposed to believe that the illuminati which was a concept in the marvel universe for a period of time featuring namor xavier reed richards tony stark t'challa and black bolt as sort of the secret group of brilliant minds operating behind the scenes 
to put things in the Marvel Universe how they should go. I never understood why we were supposed to believe that those guys could all sit in a room together and not like try and choke each other out on their dicks. Jonah, something we talk about a lot on this show is choking each other out on our Wait. Something we talk a lot about on this show is toxic masculinity as it relates to the interplay of narrative. Here, there was no chance for toxic masculinity because Namor kind of, you know, as you said it best, cool guys don't look back at explosions. So how did you feel getting to read modern Namor for the first time? I was really fascinated because Namor is a character that I have very, very, very little information to go off of. I have not seen him. He's not very referenced. He doesn't seem from what I have seen doesn't come off very popular. It was quite a shock to learn that Marvel has their own King of Atlantis and that this king is also part mutant and has a very severe superiority complex. But it was fairly interesting. I don't know how I don't know how much I resonated with Namor. And it's not that I don't think he was written well. It might just be the characterization that Namor has right now. Yeah, and you know, like, it's hot. It's just hot. It's what it is. Because the whole way that Xavier is playing this off is in part very surreptitious. This isn't an open Xavier who is being honest about his methods. No. This Xavier believes for the first time that operating in the shadows is the only chance to succeed. And not that I disagree with him, or at least not that I'm not willing to see it play out. But, you know, Submariner's a king. He's not He's not looking to play in shadows. Boys play in shadows. Men play at being kings, you know? And I think that we're seeing so many leaders contrast their leadership with Xavier's or have the leadership contrasted in some way is really helping the story. Whether it's Reed Richards early on, Sinister, Apocalypse throughout, Magneto. We have Namor. It's been such an interesting journey for Xavier more than anyone. And I feel like telling a compelling Xavier story is, God, it's like trying to milk dust. I don't know how you do it, but Hickman's really managing to. I really love that they threw in that line that Namor said about Xavier trying to basically convince him that Xavier doesn't care about the cooperation of mutants and humans anymore. Like Namor's supposed to believe that Xavier only thinks that mutants should be on top now. Like, I think that's possibly foreshadowing to show that Xavier doesn't maybe necessarily believe in everything that we've been seeing the past couple of issues. Pointing out Xavier as exception is kind of becoming par for the course. And I point that out because you're right. Xavier does keep popping up in this really unique way as at odds with the ideology he's helping to create and shape. And yet at the same time, he's still kind of the same old Xavier, kind of like that wimpy guy standing on the side line saying, no, you should go die for me. And we talked in the last episode about how even though no mutant should accept another mutant's brain, using a clone of Charles isn't really the same thing as putting Proteus in the clone of Charles because Proteus is possessing the mindless clone of Charles. Okay, but that does kind of sort of put a second Charles body on the field, and I'm not trying to play at anything, but if the person in the helmet is anybody but Charles at any point. Maybe that the Proteus body is Charles plays a factor. And then here we have that it would take an incredibly powerful psychic to restore their own legacy version of their mind and that Charles has done it twice. I guess I'm curious to know if Jean could, if Emma could. I'm positive that just to use somebody that we've talked about who is perfection, I'm positive if they're saying an extremely skilled and powerful telepath would need to be the one to do it. If Jean could 
couldn't, I don't think Monet could. So if you told me Emma and Jean could, I'd understand a little better, but I, I guess I just want to know that it's not an Xavier special ability. I mean, if Jean is a Omega-level telepath, You'd kind of expect her to be able to do that, wouldn't you? Yeah, I really would. So much of this is so new, and I'm not trying to be that guy, but did anybody else think she was an Omega-level telekinetic until, like, two months ago? Yeah, I thought, yes. she, I thought she was a stronger telekinetic than she was telepath. Right. I immediately go to sitting in a hotel room in France, and Charles touching the spoon... And Jean being like, you're touching the spoon, Charles! <laughs> so, okay, fanboy time over. I think the most important thing to remember about this story is that we're always looking to the future. And it wouldn't be a powers of ten if it weren't here to confound and frustrate Kyle. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. So, we've had so many weird fragments of this story and after xavier calls all the bad guys to the island he's like up oh, come play and then we go to the the future now i promise you jonah we're just as confused as you are how's your brain i haven't had any complaints yet Personally, I understand where the X0 and X1 stories take place, and I understand where the X2 stories take place. I am still very confused as to where X3 takes place. I'm not fully comprehending what's going on. I'm so sorry to break in, but that's the funniest thing. No one knows where X-Men The Last Stand takes place. <laughs> oh, that's... Oh. But it also, the way that it's being written, it feels like the characters don't know what's going on either with the leader being absorbed by the phalanx and now the librarian with her Nimrod companion and they don't know what they're going to do. They realize that the phalanx is a much hungry predator as opposed to a savior. So they got to deal with that now. I have so many questions about how the future is going to tie in. I, for so many reasons, don't want the future to end next issue, next uh, issue and a half. I don't know how to refer to powers to each other when there's a house between, but I would feel very much if this way far future timeline, I mean, what if the far future is Moira 6? You know, I, I'm starting to really need That's some answers on a few things, or at least promises of further questions? Y you know what I mean? Like, if you tell me that Moira's gonna factor into the inevitable first crossover, or if you tell me some of these threads will come due, because we haven't seen any sort of great humbling. Like, Apocalypse hasn't surrendered all of his many powers to be a part of this great Krakoan nation in preparation for being on Excalibur. Frequently, to have a bad guy of that level join with the good guys, it usually takes some considerable amount of depower and that we haven't seen anything like that yet is really fascinating. I also wonder if Cable feeling very lost in the world as is indicated in Fallen Angels is maybe a response to Apocalypse becoming a good guy. So Kyle, you've been trying to track this future and not bang your head too hard against the wall. That's kind of difficult. <laughs> 
knowing that we only have these two issues of story left, what are you hoping to get from the future timeline? I think I need some clarification on who the librarian is. I definitely don't think that it's Charles anymore, but we're definitely seeing pieces of the plan tied into this timeline. So I'm not I'm not really sure because where it stands right now, everything looks like they're everything is lost. That they they took the wrong turn and they're gonna be stuck. So I really hope that this is Moira Six timeline and that this isn't going to be the end game of the whole plan the whole plan that she came up with. I'm with you. I would not want the endgame to be the X-Men ultimately lose. I think I've had enough of the X-Men losing for maybe a lifetime or 10. Dylan, you had some serious reservations when you began this run. While for many, it was an opportunity for the X-Men to get back to what they were about, you noticed that a wealth of beloved characters were being sidelined from the promotional art. And while some of them have shown up, a good fair number haven't, and yet a larger number are still missing from the upcoming solicits. We've talked extensively about how hard they're working to make sure every character at least gets a couple of panels to shine. As a guy who keeps all of these X-Men perfectly cataloged in your own personal cerebro, are you starting to feel like the rich tapestry of the X-Men is playing out? My thoughts of Hickman taking over the X-Men books and with House of X and Powers of X and the solicits for the new books that are starting with Dawn of X, my thoughts on it have completely changed. I am one of those people that is quick to judge a comic book by its cover, especially when certain solicitations don't show fan favorite characters. When House of X and Powers of X were solicited, we didn't get to see some of our favorite characters, like even Jonah's favorite character, Nightcrawler, did not really appear in too many of the first solicitations, and it was kind of scary. But I really feel like the X-Men are in very good hands. Like I mentioned earlier, with a character like Forge, for Hickman to include someone that is incredibly important to X-Men history, but most fans don't necessarily know him unless they do read the comics. It's great that he would throw him in there even just for a few panels to make sure that people know that he, Hickman himself, does know what he's doing and knows how to make sure every mutant is importantly used right where they need to be used. So I'm excited. I really like that. Yeah, he's definitely earning fan credibility as someone who knows the X-Men by utilizing these characters who otherwise might be overlooked by somebody who isn't as familiar with the intricacies of 60 years of canon. Jonah, I'm so happy that you've joined us for this crossover and this is your first live run. You've been bombarded with so many changes. I really truly believe in many ways this 10 issues represents a greater shift in the paradigm of what the X-Men are than we have seen from anything since the pages of New X-Men. How are you coping with reading changes at this rate when it feels like the Claremont X-Men could barely make these kinds of leaps due to, you know, not like Claremont sucking or anything, due to like editorial constraints? A lot of it is me just kind of having to go for the ride with it. But part of what I kind of like about this is you can kind of read this at your own pace in a way. I think Dylan said it pretty well and that this is a great starting on point for a lot of new X-Men 
X fans or returning X fans who haven't read in a while. So it's not the worst in the world to, you know, have to swallow all this information. It's pretty good, pretty cool, pretty neat. the most exciting part of this ride for me has been that I thought I was being promised one story and then I thought I was being promised two mini series that like kind of added up to one story that I was always vaguely confused about the relationship between the two narratives and then it started to come out and I thought well there's no way this can be permanent at the end of these six issues this is all going to be undone and Powers probably tells the timeline created by the shift or whatever and no it didn't get undone okay and then Moira McTaggart became Moira X and I loved it and I thought to myself well this is getting undone and so far it hasn't been and sure there's plenty of time but from the solicits from the art from everything we're reading I can't imagine they're going to go back on this anytime soon I think the thing I'm loving the most is it's too late to turn back this is a door you can't shut and I'm so excited for the future of X-Men I'm finding it a little hard to believe that the present storyline is going to quote unquote wrap up next issue and that the future storyline can have any kind of supported cohesive conclusion the week after but I'm shocked Hickman has been able to create this kind of dynamic change as fast as he has and until we return to the pages of X-Men to take another look at how Jonathan Hickman is radically redefining what it means to be a mutant Kyle where can everybody find you online you can find me on both Instagram and Twitter at Drancis82 Dylan, where can everybody find you? Everybody can find me at my Facebook group for X-Men fans that is called House of X itself. And you can also find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan. That is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Jonah, where can everybody find you? You can find me in Moira's No Place. Actually, you can't because we don't know where that is. But you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. Nico, where can everybody find you? I think for the first time, I just realized that Moira's No Place sounds like a way to refer to her sacred chastity virtue. Yikes. You guys can find me here all over this amazing network, whether it's composing themes for the amazing Joey and his amazing show, Too Fast, Too Forever, Five, Six, Seven, Eight. Which, by the way, side note, real life, Kyle. Jonah, Kevo, and I all went to see Carly Rae Jepsen and go to the Big E along with Kyle's husband, Stephen. And Joey came and yay! Love Joey. It was awesome. And it was such a great time. And you can also find me on HTML with my amazing husband, Kevo, where we talk about the Alien movie franchise. And don't forget to find me on the other feeds of this show, like 80s Mutant Mania, where we talk about the 1980s classic era of Claremontian expansion through titles like The New Mutants and Soon to Be x factor you could also find me on now and again talking about pop music with my childhood best friend chris and on my instagram at nico action that's n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n all right guys and until we return to gray malkin lane we'll see ya